The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where expert historians respond to popular online search queries and questions that you've submitted via our social media channels. Today, we're speaking about daily life in ancient Egypt with Professor Joyce Tildesley. Joyce is an Egyptologist who teaches a number of online courses from Manchester University, and she's also the author of several books on ancient Egypt including Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon. Putting your questions to Joyce was Kev Lotchen, Deputy Editor of BBC History Revealed and Digital Section Editor on History Extra. Welcome to the podcast, Joyce. Oh, thank you for inviting me. As with all of our Everything You Want to Know pods, the topics we're going to be talking about are based on questions submitted by you, our listeners, and the top Google search queries. Um, so, Joyce, today we're talking about daily life in ancient Egypt, and I wondered maybe just to start off, we could do a little bit of scene setting, and maybe could you give us a kind of brief chronology of when we say ancient Egypt, when we're talking about, and a sense of that geography of where ancient Egypt 
is at this time? Yes. Um, obviously, um, if we like visit a museum and look at the Ancient Egypt Gallery, it's quite contained and we get the impression that it's quite um, a discrete culture. It's something that doesn't really change very much. And it's very hard to get an idea of the actual length of time of that culture. But when we start to look at the dates, it's a really, really long period of time. Ancient Egypt, the dynastic period, when Egypt is actually ruled by pharaohs, lasts for about 3,000 years, um, which, if you think about it, is an awfully long period of time to lump together. Um, it starts in about 3,100 BCE, when the independent city-states that are aligning the River Nile come together to form one country. And it continues with some breaks, but more or less continues to the death of Cleopatra in 30 BCE. So it's this very, very long time. And in fact, we can even make it longer because when Egypt came together in 3100 BCE, there were already city-states in Egypt. It just wasn't what we would call ancient Egypt, a dynastic um, community. So we could push it back at least another thousand years, probably almost another 2000 years. So this is a massive period of time that we're considering all lumped together as ancient Egypt. And obviously it's not one continuum, but because the art looks very similar throughout this period, we tend to think of it as all one time. We wouldn't normally say if we we're doing British history study from the Roman invasion right the way through to the present day. And this is much longer than that. Yeah, it is such a huge period. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? It's hard to think about. Um, um, you know, you think, wow, that is such a long time. I think it maybe helps put it into perspective if you remember that Cleopatra, who was the last queen of Egypt, is actually closer in time to us than she was to the building of the pyramids. I, that helps. Yeah, it's so long. At, at this time, when we say ancient Egypt, is that largely based around the Nile Delta? Or are we talking about... It is. It is. I mean, again, it changes because at some periods Egypt has an empire and other periods it actually fragments into sort of separate kingdoms. But basically you're talking about where modern Egypt is today in, in North Africa, following the length of the Nile from the Mediterranean coast down to the modern um, city of Aswan, which is where we have a Nile cataract, a sort of break in the River Nile. It's not easy to sail past Aswan and that was the natural border to Egypt. But it's a, over 600 miles long. So it's a long, thin country. And the black land, the fertile land of Egypt, is on either side of the Nile. So it's a long, thin land following the Nile. And then beyond that, if you look beyond that, um, we have the red land on either side of the black land, which is the desert, which isn't inhabitable, but it's where they build their tombs. So it's the land of the ghosts and the land of the dead. Um, excellent. Thank you for kind of summing up so succinctly. Um, you know, with the caveat that we've just said how expansive a period of time ancient Egypt is. So the, the kind of the big question here comes from Franchise 889 on Twitter, who asked, what is daily life like for an ordinary person? So I suppose we're going to break that down a bit over the course of this, but who is an ordinary person? Probably be a good place to start. Well, if, if you consider an ordinary person to be the person that would have been most of, it would be a peasant, either a male peasant or a female peasant. And their life probably did more or less seem unchanging from the very beginning of the dynastic age to the very end of it and even beyond that, in that they would live in a small hamlet, small village, not necessarily in a town, but close to a town. They would work the land that was owned by other people. They would have a life of, of toil, hard manual labour, no decent medical care, no decent 
welfare either. Um, it was all based on the family. So every Egyptian was expected to marry, to, to produce a unit that, that would support them in old age. If you're a woman, you would be expecting a lot of pregnancies, um, which is a very difficult, very dangerous time of life. But having said that, compared to ordinary life for other people in the ancient world, I think it would have been better because at least Egypt is a very fertile land and it's a land um, of plenty. It's, this is what will attract other people to try and invade Egypt later on. So these peasants are working the lands, but the chances are they won't be starving when they do it. Um, there's fish in the, in the river, there's water in the river and so on. So I think all life in the past was fairly grim compared to what we have today. But if you had to be a peasant somewhere, um, ancient Egypt would be the place to be it, I think. If you're talking about ordinary people, elite people, particularly elite males, um, life would have been really good, really good, I think. Um, yes, good food, good wine, good beer, nice clothing, jewellery, um, and not not too much to do. There are, there are so many uh, elements we can jump in on there, um, which we will. But one thing, I guess, to build on that, so this is a question from Ethan Daniels on Instagram, and he asked, how do you uh, class structures in Egypt compared to modern society? And... You know, we talked a bit about the peasants there. So just expanding that out, what do you have a kind of strata at this time? Yeah, absolutely. We, we tend to imagine it as, as what we call a social pyramid because it is quite appropriate <laughs> being Egypt. Um, but actually it works really well because the base of the pyramid is where there are by far the most blocks. And in ancient Egypt, the base of the pyramid is the peasants who work the land and who support the rest of the population by, by their agricultural labours. There are a lot of peasants. And then we have above them, we have what we would, it's hard to make comparisons, but what we'd probably call middle classes, um, craftsmen blending into educated people. And then above them, we'd have the elite who are educated, who are wealthy. And finally, at the top, we have the royal family who are very much separated from everybody else. They are, they are really special. And the king himself, because he connects to the gods, is, is right at the very, very top. He's the capstone, if you like, on the pyramid. The interesting thing is that there's very little opportunity for social mobility. So if you're born a peasant, the chances are you will die a peasant and you will probably live the life that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents lived before you. You probably won't move far away from, from your home base. Um, education is the key to progression and very few people get educated in ancient Egypt. So um, you're pretty much stuck where you're born. Um Funny enough, that is exactly a question that uh, Stella Grover and Peyretet both on Instagram asked about education. So it, it wasn't accessible broadly. No, no, no. I mean, it depends how you define education. Of course, we tend to think of academic education. And certainly, if you could read and write, if you were a scribe and, and do sums as well, these scribes did sums as well, they're not just writers, um, then you could enter the civil service and then you possibly had a chance of progression. But other boys would be educated by their fathers and their uncles in the profession that their fathers and their uncles had. So if you were the son of a carpenter, you would be educated to be a carpenter. And girls were educated in the home to do the roles that their, their mothers and their grandmothers did. So it, it is an education, but it's a practical education. Actual schooling um, was reserved for very, very few people. It's hard to know how many people could read and write and, and We've tried to estimate it and we really haven't got a clue, but it's roughly between 5 and 10% of the population could read and write. So it's not huge and almost entirely male. Uh, you, you did mention there was kind of 
a limitation on social mobility. Is there any way people did move through uh, the this, this kind of social structures? It's very hard for us to see that. Um, one of the problems about ancient Egypt is that the emphasis we have is so much on the elite because all... All the things we have when we think about museums and so on, nearly all the artefacts we have come from tombs. And the people who put artefacts in tombs are the rich people who can afford to do that. And again, the peasants and even the middle classes, but particularly the peasants who are just being buried in desert cemeteries with, with very few, maybe you know, a pot or two, we know very, very little about their lives. So even if they are being socially mobile, we can't really see it. Um for women, maybe there's more of an opportunity than for men. I'm thinking particularly if you could marry the king. <laughs> not an easy not an easy thing to do. But if you could make your way into the royal harem, maybe. And we do have examples of women who, who marry the king. They, they do come from elite backgrounds, but occasionally they can become very, very powerful indeed. And they're not born to it. They, they kind of marry into it. But we have to have the caveat that they he's not going out and marrying peasants. He's marrying people from roughly his own social class. Um, but it, it's hard. And people, um, they don't always tell us what we want to know. That's the problem. These, these things that would fascinate us, people don't necessarily want to tell us that they had an, a humble origin. I wanted to ask about slaves in ancient Egypt and how prevalent they were in society because there's this kind of, um, well, as I understand it, it's a myth. They built the pyramids and they did not. Yes, um, the, the idea that there are slaves in Egypt um, comes from, I think, the Bible, but also Hollywood. Uh, it's quite, quite often to see slaves doing things in ancient Egypt. Actually, there were very few slaves in ancient Egypt. There were some. Some of them were prisoners of war who were, who were brought to Egypt. Um, sometimes, in fact, the pharaohs would go out and basically stage a campaign to capture people, to take them back to Egypt to work on their projects and then send them back again. There were some people who sold themselves into slavery. It did exist. And I would also add that it can be quite difficult for us to distinguish, because we're working in translation here, between servants and slaves. But it's not its not as prevalent as Hollywood would make us believe. And certainly the pyramids weren't built by slaves. We have very good evidence to show that they were built by workers who were summoned under a corvée system of national service. So you'd be expected to go to the pyramid site and work there for a few months and you get paid in the form of rations, and then you go back home again. And that, that's how they did it, not not by using slaves. On Facebook, uh, someone asked about the pyramids specifically. Did they have to have guards at the pyramids to prevent grave robbers of the time? It's a good question. Um, I would imagine that they did have guards because they seem to have had guards everywhere. But robbing a pyramid would not be that easy in that... It's something that, that is very hard to hide. If you're going to... It, it, and also, particularly we talk about pyramids here, there's a limited amount of space within a pyramid. So it's unlikely that it'd be vast treasure. I mean, there would be treasures in it. The king's body alone would probably be covered in amulets and gold and so on, and you're way beyond the dreams of normal people. But if you were going to rob something in the pyramid age, you'd be far better probably robbing the temples, I would have thought, or an elite grave of a person who isn't in a pyramid. Um, and these pyramids are in, they're not just isolated. Around them, there were all sorts of graves for the elite courtiers. It's almost like when the king died, he went to, to his afterlife surrounded by his own court. All those also would contain a lot of valuables. And I think certainly if I was a robber, that's what I would go for. But when you get to the New Kingdom, which is the time of Tutankhamun, Kings aren't being buried in pyramids, they're buried in rock-cut tombs, and these just have a door. And they're also isolated for, 
from from the um, the city. And there's good evidence that they were robbed and robbed and robbed again. Tutankhamun's tomb was robbed twice before it was covered by mud and hidden. So I'm sure that there were guards there to, to stop this happening. The problem was that we suspect that quite often it was actually the guards who were doing the robbing because they knew where the tombs were and who would stop them. On the pharaohs, this seems like a good segue into this. Um, lots of people on so Jessica Robertson Facebook, Zoe Marie on Instagram, Toy Ronco, they all want to know the, the pharaohs are kind of the famous faces of Egypt, if you will. But how much does did they? How much influence did they have on the everyday person? Technically, the pharaoh kind of was in charge of everything in Egypt um, because he was the one Egyptian who could actually communicate with the gods. And the gods were really important because if the gods were unhappy with Egypt, Egypt wouldn't flourish. So in his role of making the gods happy, the king assumed responsibility for the civil service and the army and the priesthood. So technically, he was very, very important. But the peasants living in the hamlets along the Nile, I'm fairly sure, possibly didn't even know who the pharaoh was. Um, It's so remote their allegiance would be, and, and where they would get their information from and, and their orders from, would be their local landowner, the person who was way, way, way down the chain of command. Um, so actually, in a practical level, I think for the ordinary Egyptian, the pharaoh would make very little difference. As long as there was a pharaoh on the fer- throne, um, they, they possibly wouldn't even know who it was. So is it just a point of stability rather for that? Uh, everyday person rather than yeah yes but again I mean, we kind of we get it in our own society as well in a way it's always surprising because quite often we get surveys and people are asked who the prime minister is and actually a lot of people claim not to know it's the same sort of thing you know if, if you're engaged with your own daily life which is a relentless toil of working in the fields or, or working in a quarry you're not necessarily concerned with who's actually at the top of your social pyramid and, and sending out the orders but of course, if the, the pharaoh suddenly did something um, strange and ordered you to move house or something, um, it did happen once where we had a pharaoh who went a bit rogue and who changed the state religion, then that might start to have more impact on the ordinary people. But that that's one pharaoh in, in 3,000 years with a pharaoh, so it's, it's not a common thing. On a tangent, which pharaoh is that and why did they do that? Akhenaten, um, who was started off as Amenhotep IV and started off as a conventional pharaoh communicating with the traditional gods. Three or four years into his reign, he suddenly decided that he was basically going to dedicate himself to just one god, which in a polytheistic society is shocking, a sun god. And he changed his name to Akhenaten. He moved the capital city to a new city. He built a new city. He built new temples and he tried to change everything. And suddenly the elite were expected to worship this one god and to forget everything that god before. The peasants probably didn't, again, really notice much difference. But to the elite who surrendered the king, this was really important. But it didn't last. Um, it was something very personal to him. And when he died, in fact, Tutankhamun was able to bring Egypt back to how it had been before. Linked to that, one question we've had from Todd Kiabi Patton on Facebook was um, about how truly did the Egyptians believed that the pharaoh was a god on earth and he asked that surely the people in the upper levels of government who we I guess they would have known who the pharaoh was rather than the the people in Nile Delta uh, would have had their doubts about that. Yeah um, I mean theoretically the king isn't actually a living god. Theoretically he's somewhere between a person a, a mortal person. I don't want to say mortal because actually the gods can die so technically mortal isn't quite correct but 
between the people and the gods. He's halfway there. He's semi-divine, if you like. And it's, uh, the concept of being semi-divine is always a difficult one because, I mean, how, how are you half-divine? But anyway, he's semi-divine, but knows that when he dies, he will become one with the gods. So he'll become fully divine at the point he dies. But that does make him very, very different to everybody else. Um, I don't know. It's difficult to know how much people believe this. And um, certainly... We don't have any indication that the ordinary people ever try to attack the pharaoh or try to get rid of the pharaoh. Occasionally, when there are attempts on the pharaoh's life, they come from very close within the royal family, which suggests that maybe it's his wives and his children who are finding it difficult to accept this this, this um, untouchable nature, if you like, of the king. Because, of course, even thinking about attacking or killing the king, who is the one person who is liaising with the gods and ensuring that everything is right in Egypt, it's a very dangerous thing to think about doing. So you have to imagine that if wives and sons are thinking of doing this, then they don't actually believe that that person is themselves untouchable. But I think to the ordinary people, again, it's, it's very difficult to say. You mentioned how the pharaoh kind of headed up the uh, the kind of the priesthood and the army. Um, how does governance work on a kind of more day-to-day basis? Like, does the pharaoh have kind of complete control? Is it delegated? It, it's delegated because obviously he can't he can't deal with all this himself. And it, it's a very long, thin country and communication from one end of the country to another take, probably takes a, a week or so. So it would be very difficult. So he has deputies. We can see it, I think, best in the priesthood, actually, that though technically he's the head priest of every cult, in fact, he appoints deputies who are priests who will work in the temples on his behalf. But this is why if we look at an Egyptian temple and we look at the walls, we always see the king doing the offerings because technically it's the king doing it, but actually he's appointed deputies to work on his behalf. The same thing happens in the civil service um, with a particular reliance on the royal family. And this is particularly obvious at the beginning of the um, dynastic age. As time goes on, as Egypt gets bigger, they tend to have a bigger civil service. But certainly at the beginning, it's the royal family who support the king. So it'll be royal princes and people who are very close to the king running things. And he just, I mean, I don't know how much actually he does. It's, It's difficult to say. But technically, he's in charge of everything. You just mentioned there that the pharaoh is the kind of the head of every cult. Um, if you're again a, a kind of an average person in this massive polytheistic religion, who are the most important kind of gods to, to you as an everyday person? Well, again, this is where it gets complicated. <laughs> um, we have this. We have the big state temples and the big state gods. And they are really the gods that are in charge of the other gods. So you get gods like Tar in Memphis and Ammon in Thebes. But those big state temples, the ones that we're familiar with, like the Karnak Temple Complex, that people might have seen if they've been on holiday to Luxor, they really are nothing to do with the ordinary people. That is where the statue of the state god is. But it's the king who worships there. There aren't public services that people go to. You don't go to a service at the temple there. You could have nothing to do with that god. The king will do it on your behalf. The ordinary people, the peasants and the the middle classes are far more likely to worship gods in their own little local temples. So maybe a local variant of Ammon or even a local variant of a dead king, but also ancestor worship and the worship of gods that we tend to, again, class as demigods um, or or almost, I don't know what you call them, but there's, there's a god, for example, Bess, who doesn't have a big state temple, but who is very clearly important because he's connected with childbirth. 
And so we get a lot of images of Bess. He's clearly very important to the ordinary people because childbirth is, is a trauma that, that all families go through. But he's not got a big state temple. Um, it, it very much depends where you are, again, on the social scale as to how you interact with the gods. So would it be the case that you uh, interact with gods based on uh, your kind of needs, so to speak? Like you mentioned bears and childbirth then, and you pray yes. gods for particular things. It, again, it's difficult for us to know because, again, we have the information from the state temples and we have the information from the elite. We have far less information from the peasants. I mean, it's quite interesting because a good example of this is what people believe will happen after death. We know pretty clearly what those who could afford big big um, burials and mummification and writings and so on believe, but we have no idea what the people who were peasants who were buried just in graves in the desert what they even expected to happen after death we really don't know because they don't tell us because they don't write it down well so we've got a couple of questions about this. so james down on instagram he asked uh, what's preparing for the afterlife an obsession for average people i wouldn't say it was an obsession for anybody actually okay. i would say it was a part it was say it was a part of daily life um it was a sensible thing to do because they did believe that if your body survived in a recognizable form your soul could survive and you would have an afterlife away from the tomb. But it was very important that your body on earth survived. And this is why they have mummification, so that this body survives in this recognisable human form. But these are the elite. These are the elite who are doing mummification, who are going to the grave with grave goods. And this is what we see in museums. We don't see their houses because their houses were made of mud brick and have vanished. They've been flattened or their living goods have been repurposed they were passed on to the, the people who, who came after them and so on so we're getting a very very one-sided view of ancient egyptian life and it, again if we go to a museum we could get the impression that they are obsessed with death but actually what they love is life they love life and they want this life to continue after death and they make the sensible precautions that they would need to do that but we're not getting a balancing other side of the story. We're not seeing what they did from, from, if you like, from nine till five. You know, we're only seeing this one aspect of it, and I think it is distorting it. So no, I don't think the peasants would have spent a lot of time thinking about burials and, and death rituals and so on. But I'm not sure how much time the, the you know the elite did as well. I think that was just one aspect of their life. And mummification, just between all that, mummification wasn't for everyone. No, no, it's it's hugely expensive. At the beginning, it's very much restricted to those around the royal family. Um, as the dynastic age progresses, as people get wealthier, as e- as Egypt get, gets more prosperous, more and more people are mummified. But still, even at the very end of the dynastic age, the vast majority of the people are not mummified. Um, they just go into a grave in the desert. It's actually quite ironic. I mean, they. The Egyptians developed artificial mummification and obviously spent many, many years working out how to do it and, and very expensive ritual to try and make the mummy like look lifelike. But actually, if you just bury a body in the desert sands with nothing around it, it will actually be quite well preserved and will actually look very lifelike. Yeah, they didn't want to do that, though, because that means you have to put the body into the sand with the sand touching it and it's hot and it's sterile and, and fluids, I don't know into detail, <laughs> but fluids will, dr- will drain away <laughs> and the body will be preserved. If you want to provide grave goods and a coffin to, to take the sand off the face and, and grave goods that might be used in the afterlife, 
you start to separate the body from the hot sand, then the body will start to decay. So it's when they start to use coffins that they suddenly develop the need for artificial mummification. I've had a lot of questions about health and medicine. So one place I'd actually quite like to start is with mummification and they are making these incisions to remove internal organs. How does that tie into the ancient Egyptian kind of understanding of medicine? Yeah, Egypt's doctors were famed actually throughout the ancient world as being the best doctors. They, they, they have. We've got surviving medical textbooks um, which show us how they actually treated things, and it's interesting because they have a mixture of practical cures for things, and um, also combined with prayers. So, for a doctor to perform efficiently, he will give you a practical remedy and say a prayer at the same time, and you need both both bits of that for for the actual remedy to become effective. Some of the things they do are very sensible. They're good with injuries, which you might expect injuries like you might get on a building site, for example, which they must have had a lot of. They're quite good with those. And they also know when something can't be treated. So they know, you know, a brain injury. When you, if, the, if the skull has been damaged and you can see the brain um, through the skull, there's possibly nothing you can do. And they will record that as well, that the person can't be treated. There are a lot of, of recipes, um, prescriptions for other diseases we have trouble sometimes understanding what they mean because they use words that, that, that are difficult. You can imagine if we tried to translate our medicine into a different language, it's, it's hard to, for us, looking back, to actually understand what they're talking about. But they they were aware of things like um, antiseptic properties in honey. And so they're, they're using that. And they also have treatments, which is rather sweet, for, for infertility, for baldness, for things that worry us today that, that aren't necessarily direct illnesses, which were also important to society. You would have thought that the fact that their funerary rituals require them to basically explore the human body would help them in this. But it's quite interesting. For example, the doctors definitely know that the brain is important. They know that it's the brain damage. They might not be able to, to move their limbs, for example. And yet the undertakers, who are mummifying bodies, don't rate the brain at all. And they just throw it away. <laughs> they basically, um, they, they, they extract it and throw it away because they don't think it's necessary for anything. And they think that the heart is the organ where um, thought comes from. It's the organ of thought, and, and that's what you will need for the afterlife, but you don't need your brain. Um, and it's also interesting that um, the doctors don't really have an understanding of the female body. So they have this idea that the womb is is floating round the body, and could be obstructed. That there's a they, they also think there's a passageway basically from top to bottom, <laughs> and it's important that that doesn't get obstructed. And you would think that because of them actually taking out the internal organs during mummification, they would know that that wasn't true. But actually, when they're mummified, they make the the, the, the hole that they make in the body, the slit, on, it's usually on the left hand side. It's actually quite small. It's about Tutankhamun's embalming slit was about nine centimeters. Oh wow! And if you, yeah, if you think about an autopsy today, we make a massive cut in the body. They weren't doing that, so maybe they just didn't think about what they were doing. Maybe they didn't take a really good look inside. I don't know, but yes, they knew a lot more than other doctors. But at the same time, they knew less, I think, than we might have expected them to know, given their funerary rituals. Probably that the two are completely separate. You've got undertakers in one camp doing one thing, you've got doctors in, in another camp, and the two don't actually interact that much. But it's a really interesting question. I have, so, I have so many questions to jump off from it as well. But first, the brain. It doesn't even make it into a canopic jar. No, no, no. You um, Would you like me to tell you what happens to it? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, well, basically, you um, the best way to extract the brain is to break the ethmoid 
bone at the top of the nose and then you put in a long handled spoon and you whisk it around a bit and that will liquefy the brain and then you prop the head up and it trickles down the nose wonderful i don't yes i don't i don't know why i'm laughing um i, I, I think um i think one thing we don't always appreciate we talk about mummies and so on but it, it must have been such a messy process and such a smelly process they did it the Undertaker's workshops were on the fringes of society again. They, were, they weren't in the desert, but they weren't in the cultivated land either. They were away from that. And obviously that maintains the mystery and it also helps the dead person to be halfway between the living and the dead, which is probably important. But at a very practical level, there would have been flies and there would have been vermin and smells and it would have been a good place to put it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We see Senate on two walls. People are playing it not only with their friends, but they're also playing it on two walls and they haven't got an opponent. And the, the assumption is that they're playing it with death as well, that almost by, by playing a board game, you can take your mind away from the earthly plane. You can get lost in the game if you like. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that uh, Molly Fenley on Instagram asks is, what was pregnancy and childbirth like? Very difficult, I would, I would think. Um, really, there isn't much understanding of medical help that could be available in pregnancy. So um, it's something that the, the male doctors don't talk about that much. We assume that they're male doctors, and there's no evidence really that they're not male doctors. And most professional people, almost all, are, are um, men. There are We have spells, recipes to promote fertility and to t- detect pregnancy, but actually in childbirth, there's very little information about it, and we get the impression that it's basically done by midwives. Um, there are some mythological stories that mention goddesses arriving at the houses of pregnant women to perform the role of a midwife. So it seems to me it's something that very much your mother might help with, the wise woman in the village might help with. Very little equipment to go with that, but we have some, uh, again, religious magical tools that might have been helped. Particularly, we have some things that are made out of carved ivory, which have got images of protective spirits on them. 
Um, we call them batons. It might be better to call them magic wands that we suspect were maybe used to draw a circle around the mother and child to protect them. Um, it's a dangerous time and it's a very scary t- time for the whole family because this idea of a new life coming into into being is a strange thing anyway. Yeah, I think it would have been difficult. We have mummies that have clearly died in childbirth where the child is still oh, wow. there. Yes, I mean, if your pelvis is too small, the baby gets stuck. There's really nothing can be done about it. And pregnancy would have been the, the biggest killer of women. If you, if you got through your childhood, then the next danger for a woman was clearly pregnancy um, because with not much effective con- um, contraception either, you might well be looking at a pregnancy a year for, for many years. What uh, did contraception amount to in ancient Egypt? <laughs> um, we, we don't really know. There, there are suggestions that they use crocodile dung as a, as a sort of pessary <laughs> that, that they could use. Um, there, there are reports of that. I could see that would be effective, um, but... Um, we don't really get the impression that the Egyptians particularly wanted to stop having children. But that's the thing. So um, th- there's not a lot of information about it, but the, the crocodile dung one is the famous one that people have always heard of. I mean, the crocodile one leads us into a question from Merov Kolinsky on Facebook, which is, what were uh, hygiene habits like at this time? I would imagine quite poor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, again, it's... It's only really the elite who can afford to be clean, isn't it? It's maintaining cleanliness if you're living in a, a mud brick house with no access to water. It is very, very difficult. We can see the elite have got cosmetics. They're using Natron soap. They can, they can bathe. They can have people wash their clothes for them and so on. But the poorer people don't have those luxuries. And I imagine it would be very basic. Um, it's interesting. I always think this is interesting. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe because my parents were both dentists, but there's no evidence of teeth cleaning. Really? Yes. Yes. There's again the the um, the recipes, the the uh, medical textbooks mention recipes for sweetening the breath, but there's no evidence of teeth cleaning, which always seems to me very strange. No. Of course, this could be because it was something so obvious that nobody actually thought about writing about it, because we don't often write about teeth cleaning either. But to me, that seems just very odd. The thing is, toothache could kill um, because if you've got an abscess, there is very little could be done about it. And we have at least one pharaoh who we think might have died because they had a dental abscess. And we can see others, they've got holes in their teeth and holes in, in their jaws. And they have actually suffered really badly. And of course, if you have no teeth, it's difficult to eat. So I know I know it, it's, um, it's both funny and not funny because to us, tooth... Teeth is a very minor aspect of life, aren't they? But of course, to them, actually, it's really important. You mentioned with the elites there about they actually could bathe and have people wash their clothes from. In, in that sense, do they have? Is there like something like a bathhouse equivalent from like the Roman era? We have from a site called Cahoon. We actually have. Um, Oh, is it, is it a site called Amana? We have from one site anyway. Evidence of actual shower trays oh, wow. and there's sort of a bathroom in a house. And what's happened? What's it's, it's basically a stone tray, and you stand in it, and there's like a screen round it, presumably not made of mud brick, and you get a servant to throw water over over you, which is very effective. It would work really, really well. And there's also evidence for toilets. Again, not not plumbed in, but basically a sort of pedestal, and then underneath the pedestal, there's a, a sandbox 
which is unemptied. So yes, if if you if you could afford it, um, you you could live, lead a, a clean life. I think it's one thing that that very much the elites use to distinguish themselves from the poor: the fact that they're able to be clean. Because if we look in on tomb walls, where we see images of people, they're quite often wearing gleaming white clothing, which would have been very very impractical for real life. But um, again, it's signifying that they can be that clean. A couple of other kind of questions uh, grouped together we've had in were about beauty and cosmetic shot bars on Instagram, uh, breadcrumbs on Instagram as well. And they kind of asked, like, what were, uh, what, what beauty and cosmetics did they have in ancient Egypt? Isn't that also solely for the elite classes, or would everyone have access to those things? Um, again, but more, I'm sure, for the elite. Um, but I, well, first of all, it's not purely a female thing. Men and women both wear cosmetics um we have cosmetic sets belonging to the elite and they have things like razors because they would shave their body hair and shave their heads um not always but but sometimes um perfumes and oils to go on the skin and then we have eye makeup and this is where i'm hesitating because eye makeup is not just beautiful it also might have had some sort of protective quality to it um in that it might deflect the, the rays of the sun a bit or, or, or deaden them. It's, it's been suggested that my, or they might have believed this was the case, even if it wasn't the case. So it's possible that that was used by a wider section of the community. But I'm sure, again, the poorer people would, would earn virtually nothing. Um, and owning a, a stone cosmetic jar full, filled with, with perfumed oils would, would be very, very expensive. Um, we think that when tomb robbers go into tombs, one of the first things they steal are the ointments and the perfumes because they're expensive and they know they'll go off. So if you can rob a tomb as soon as it's been filled, you'll take that stuff first because it's got a limited shelf shelf life. Um, what else do they have? We have images of women putting lip, what looks like lipstick on, um, but that doesn't seem to feature particularly. Um, I don't know how common that is. In, in the wider community, we do have one. I think it's one image of, of someone doing that. And of course, the the most famous kind of Egyptian beauty kind of trope is Cleopatra. Um, is is that kind of that eye makeup? Is that the kind of the uh, deadening the sunlight kind of thing we were talking about? And what what would that actually be made of? It's made out of of ground um, mineral pigments. Uh-huh. So you grind it up on a little palette, a bit like we have a cosmetic palette today, and then you would apply it with a stick. Uh, around the eyes um i think difficult if you didn't have a mirror because mirrors again are, are, are expensive whether someone would do it for you and this is another thing to do this properly yourself you need a mirror and a mirror is is a is a polished piece of metal very rare very expensive cleopatra is interesting because she's right at the end of the dynastic age and she comes from a family that's of greek origins so we don't actually know how she dressed normally, but I would suspect that when she was in normal daily life, she didn't dress so much like a traditional Egyptian queen, but more like a classical Greek lady. And of course, the idea that she's beautiful, there's no evidence that she actually was beautiful. And in fact, if we look at her coins, I mean, obviously beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and she also might have chosen a particular striking image for her coins to impress people, but she's not, in modern terms, particularly beautiful on her coins. Uh, I think it's just the idea that she's so easily able to captivate two really important Romans makes us think that she must have been really fantastically good-looking. But actually, she was more famed for intelligence than for her beauty. 
Another uh, kind of myth in the level of the slaves building the pyramids. Yes, yes, yes. But the the thing is, it's a bit, it's a bit spoil sport like to to put, put to to knock these myths. But actually, the true story is even more interesting. So everything that you knock down, there's something more interesting to come in its place. What did uh, ancient Egyptians typically wear? It's a common question on Google. This one. I think if we look on the tomb walls, and these tomb walls aren't snapshots of daily life. They're they're what the elite Egyptians want to happen in the next life. Um, you will see them. The women are wearing white dresses, and the men are quite often wearing white kilts. It's all made of linen. Um, all their, nearly all their their cloth is, is pretty much all of it is made of linen, um, which comes from flax, which is grown in Egypt. But if we were to actually look at the garments that have survived, um, we can see that there's actually a variety of coloured garments. Tutankhamun's um, tomb, which is a good source of garments, shows that he's got quite a lot of colourful embroidered appliqued garments. And if we look in more humble burials, we can see that people are wearing pretty much what um, people of Egypt wear today, a sort of galabia-like garment with sleeves in, um, which would be very practical. But obviously on the tomb walls, what they show is is the ideal. It's not necessarily what, what was actually worn. So I think costumes would have been far less elaborate in real life than they appear on, on the walls. And it's also, fashions vary. But in the Old Kingdom, for example, the, the very beginning, the time when they're building the Great Pyramids, we see women um, in art wearing really, really tight white dresses. And they're so tight that we know that they wouldn't have been able to walk in them because you can see their entire body outline. So clearly that's not right. Um, it's being used to, to show off the body and not exactly what they would have worn. Staying with uh, women in ancient Egyptian society, we've had a number of questions on this. So one of those is from Emily B. Leonoff on Facebook who asked what kind of uh, roles or jobs do women have in Egyptian society uh, and did they have any kind of property rights that would be similar to men? Yes, they had property rights, um, and this we we consider this quite unusual because in many ways the women of ancient Egypt had property rights that women in Britain didn't have till considerably later. They could own their own property, and because they could own property, that meant they could work because you can't really work if you can't own things because you can't have any sort of wage. They could work outside the home. They didn't have to have a guardian. So, for example, in ancient Rome, women were under the control of a male guardian. This didn't happen. So they could live alone. If they were widowed, they could raise their own children. They didn't have to go back to their father's household. They didn't have to pass their children on to their husband's family and so on. So they had independent lives. Having said that, the expectation was that men and women would marry. And this was sound practical sense because by marrying you created an economic unit and the men and the women within the marriage were kind of complementary so the man would do the outside work he would go out and earn the wage the woman would control the house there would there would be it, it wasn't as black and white as that makes it sound women could also go out and work and they did go out and work but there, there was this this sort of matchingness that that the two together made one couple if if you like um we see women doing work, but because they're not as educated, they're not trained up to a trade in the same way as a man, it tends to be less, less. I don't want to say less important because it is important work, but it's less socially valued, if you like. For example, a lot of women seem to have worked in, in the weaving trade because obviously um, the, the, the cloth used is linen, which comes from flax. Um, some of this is very, very fine linen. Some of it is quite uh, useful, like royal garments, 
garments for the gods. Some of it is very coarse linen used for sales. Some of it's rope. So there's a whole range of stuff. And of course, with mummification, there's a vast, vast demand for linen in Egypt. So there are a lot of women working in this in this weaving trade. And yet we tend to undervalue or almost not see their work. We tend to just, it's very easy to say, well, women didn't work. They looked after the home and the men worked. It's, that is clearly not true if we look at the evidence that they did work. But their work might be done within the home. They might be they might be doing it at home in between doing the other jobs. And so it's not so easy for us to see. I think I think certainly both men and women at the lower levels work very hard to to keep the the family together. You talked very briefly there about the kind of the family unit and economic units. There's a, there's a question I've had in from Rich TKMYC on Instagram, which is what was LGBTQ culture like in ancient Egypt? I suppose we just said, was there any? Well, obviously there would have been people who were different from the accepted norm, um, but it's never mentioned. Um, this is just the thing. There's there's no sense that this was in any way considered wrong. But there's no sense that it was in any way considered at all, if you see what I mean. We're lacking the evidence. We have two tombs, which both seem to show two men in a close relationship. But this relationship is never explained. So they could be partners, but they could equally well be brothers. And it's been suggested that they're twins. Um, apart from that, we we really, really don't know. But this, again, is it's because of the evidence that we have, that mainly it comes from tombs. And within the tomb... They're showing a very stereotypical um, way of life. You're not; re- we're not always getting the full flavour of what a well-rounded life would be like. So it's a good question and it's an interesting question, but it's one that's really difficult for us to answer with absolute evidence because also it, it, we don't see people who are in any way disabled particularly, and there, there must have been people like that. There must have been. It was a well-rounded society, everybody making different contributions. It's just not recorded. Such a shame, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is a shame. It is a shame because they know there's whole sections of the community there that we'd love to know more about and who are clearly making contribution to, to the culture, and we just can't say anything about them. One more thing that our readers would love to know more about a section of the culture is food um, <laughs> what can you tell us about uh what the kind of the diet was in ancient egypt and there's specifically uh some questions that come in about street food as well like if i just want to pop out and have a snack uh yeah there was a lot of food in egypt which is a really really good thing but for most people peasant peasant level you again you're talking about a heavy emphasis mm-hmm. on grain so wheat and barley which was used to make bread and also used to make beer. Beer was a standard drink. Um, beer would have probably been um, cleaner, better to drink than water from the Nile, which certainly, because the Nile also served as a sewer. So, yes, yeah, and it was muddy. It's, it's, yeah, you, you probably wouldn't want to drink it. Although, again, I say this because we see beer and wine in tomb seams. We see beer, we have beer jars and so on. Actually, there are a lot of wells as well. A lot of people were clearly drinking clean water, but it doesn't get recorded. A lot of fish eating because we have the Nile. Um, So there's a lot of fish and it's freely available. Even better, once a year, the Nile will flood and it will cover the land and the peasants have to stop working on the land and they do other things. And then the waters will retreat back to the Nile again and they'll leave behind fish just lying on the field. So you can actually go and, yeah, you can pick them up and you can, you can preserve them. Obviously you you would want to preserve them, but you can wind dry them and, and so on. And you would have fish which is great. Again, very little mention actually of eating fish 
Um, it's fish isn't off to the gods, but that doesn't mean it wasn't eaten. It just means that it was so basic, probably, that you wouldn't write about it. Um, also, for the peasant level, um, vegetables, quite a monotonous, repetitive diet with some meat um, and fowl and so on on special occasions. If you move up to the other end of the social scale, um, there's cattle, there's sheep, there's pork. It's, we're quite often told they didn't have pork, but they did. There's all sorts of breads, like you could use put eggs in and make it into cakes and so on. A vast range of food available and very few shortages. Occasionally, the Nile wouldn't perform as, as expected and that might lead to a food shortage. But on the whole, compared to other places, it's interesting that the Egyptians don't develop very, very elaborate ways of cooking because they don't need to. In Rome, for example, you tended to cover everything, in, if you could, in a, in a quite pungent fish sauce. And I suspect that is to hide the, the nature of the food that you're putting <laughs> underneath it. The Egyptians don't need to do that because their food is very fresh. Everybody lives quite close to the countryside. So we don't have old people aren't eating old food. Street food is interesting because we don't have any evidence of what we call a pub or a restaurant or anything like that. But we do have market traders and they do sell food. So if you don't want to cook at home and not everybody would be able to, if you're a visitor, for example, picking up street food would be a very easy thing. I'm imagining here breads, um, things like hummus, stuff like that, very easy to pick up. And beer, of course, you could pick up beer from a street market as well. And if I was out doing that, this is a question from Raj Kamlin on Twitter, um, what currency would I be using? You wouldn't. They don't have money. Uh-huh. Not not until you get to the end of the dynastic age. It's a, bar, it's a barter system, which makes it difficult. Um, if you were a traveller, to be honest, I think you would be quite dependent on the hospitality. When you arrived in a strange village, you might well be hoping that someone will offer to put you up and you in return would do the same when someone came to your village. Um, otherwise, if you're paid a wage, it's probably going to be in grain or maybe bread and you will swap this. Or you will do skills. You will um, offer to make a coffin for someone in exchange for them giving you some, yeah, and so on. That's the way it works. It seems to us very, very complicated. Um, there are ways of, of judging levels of things. So it's not just completely random, but basically it's, it's, a, it's an, each, each transaction is an individual transaction based on the perceived values of the two people who are a part of it. You would think it wouldn't work, but it worked for for. for thousands of years so it, it worked well and and following on from that theme you know i've got my snack i have an evening to spare um lizzie m717 on instagram and uh, actually sinclair on instagram so they both want to know what i would do for fun i think we'll play board games just like we do today <laughs> <laughs> there's no pubs there's no restaurants as far as we know there's no actual theaters there's no equivalent of the arena the roman arena we do have travelling musicians, we do have banquets, and we can see people at banquets being entertained by musicians. We have dancers, but they would move around. I think there were storytellers who would move around the villages. Board games are very popular. It, it's it's um, it's more based on the home, if you like. You, your entertainment comes to you rather than you going out to be entertained. Is that right? But, um, yeah, board games are very, very popular with ancient Egypt. I know about Senate. Yes. <laughs> is that the main one uh, that we know about? Yeah, it's the main one. Um, and it's an interesting one because we see Senate on two walls. People are playing it not only with their friends, but they're also playing on two walls and they haven't got an opponent. 
And the, the assumption is that they're playing it with death as well, that almost by, by playing a board game, you can take your mind away from the earthly plane. You can get lost in the game if you like. And that will help you achieve an afterlife. But there are others. There's similar to Senate, which is very much like backgammon for, for people who don't know about it. There's an interesting one called Meehan that's in the shape of a snake. And you you, you put um, counters, you, you chase them around towards the centre of a snake. Oh, wow. One area, I'd, so this is a difficult one for me because I'm very much a dog person. But um, lots of our listeners want to know about cats in ancient Egypt. You know, Jessica Roberts, Arjuna Wilbur's, Blake Raspberry, they all want to know the cats so <laughs> perennial favorite um what do cats symbolize in ancient egypt and why are they so well revered okay um i think we have well it's difficult to know where to start with this one cat, first of all you're right that the egyptians are cat people rather than dog people because I think they see the cat as more independent and the dog is slightly cringing and servile. So you, you, you admire the cat for being independent. And we have we know that Egyptians kept cats as pets. Um, we have actually a coffin from a pet cat from one of the royal princes. Um, we also know that they took their cats when they went hunting. Whether the cats were actually very good at retrieving, um, you know, if, if you th- had a throwing stick and you threw and brought down a bird, whether the cat would actually bring it back to you rather than eat it, I don't know. Anyway, that, so we we have cats in daily life as pets, and, and they seem to be loved members of the family. But I think we have to separate that out from the vast number of cat mummies that we have. The cat mummies tend to date from the later part of the dynastic period. And they're associated with the cult of the goddess Bast or Bastet because she can be represented as a cat. Now, she's not the only um, god or goddess that can be represented as an animal. And we have to be very careful here. The, The Greeks and Romans interpreted this as just basically very simple animal worship, that they were worshipping a cat, and they're not. It's not like that. It's much more complicated than that. And it's difficult because it's never explained to us. But what we think is happening, that this goddess is represented in the form of a cat because it embodies many of her characteristics. But they don't necessarily, in their heads, think of of this goddess as being either a cat or a human with a cat head. But when they have to represent her, that is the closest that they can get. So they show her that way, but they don't necessarily think of her that way. Anyway, she's strongly connected with cats. So people who would go to her cult centre there would be a zoo of cats there and they would be able to buy a mummified cat to offer to the cat goddess. And this is what they did. They did it to other gods as well. For example, Thoth, who can be an ibis. If people visited um, his temple in Middle Egypt, they would buy an ibis mummy, a bird mummy, and they they would then donate it and it would be put in a catacomb with, with, with lots of other ibis mummies. It's why we have so many animal mummies. So these cat mummies that we have, the majority of them are not pets. They're cats that were specially bred to be sacrificed for for the goddess. And, and, and yeah, I know it's odd, isn't it? It's, um, it's not what we do today, I think. But um, it seems an odd way of respecting a cat to kill a cat. But um, that's how it happened. And I think what interests us is because a cat is a domesticated animal and because we, are, we have our own cats and we're so fond of our cats. Um, I'm allergic to cats, so I don't have a cat. But, um, yeah, um, we... Um, we can we can empathise with this and we perhaps regard it differently, but we should remember that it's part of a whole chain of animal mummies, of, of, 
of um, ibises and, and crocodiles can be mummified. And we even have odd things being mummified like fish and snakes and mice and offered to the gods oh, wow. as an offering. Yes. Um, but certainly cats. The, when the Romans saw this, you see, and the Greeks, they, they thought that the Egyptians were simply worshipping animals, which they thought was very backwards. And we get stories of people being killed because they've been disrespectful to a cat. But I think we have to be careful um, how how true these stories actually are, whether they're just rumours, um, because it doesn't seem particularly Egyptians. The Egyptians are quite laid back people and killing a cat doesn't seem that the sort of thing that they would kill a person for. But we have this story from one of the classical authors tells us this. I'm not entirely sure it's true. So, yes, the Egyptians did really like the cats. They had the cats as pets. They really liked them. They preferred them to dogs. But we have to be careful not to classify every cat mummy that we have as actually a mummified pet because they're not. And there were many thousands of them. And in fact, there were so many, many, many thousands of animal mummies that some of them were shipped over to Britain and used as fertilisers in our fields. Wow. I know, that's so strange, isn't it? To bring uh, this to such an expansive topic to a conclusion, I wonder, is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should have done? I guess I guess there's whole aspects of life that we haven't talked about, like transport, which is fascinating because it's all by water. Let's let's talk about that. So, how important is the Nile then, in that sense, to Egyptian life and culture? The Nile's absolutely fundamental to Egyptian life and culture because without the Nile, there wouldn't be an Egypt. Because Egypt is in in Africa in what would be um, a hot and arid zone, and without the water supplied by the Nile, it would be very difficult to settle along the Nile, and very difficult to settle with the comforting reassurance that you will always have water. The Egyptians don't have to invest in big irrigation systems because they know that every year the Nile will flood. And when the Nile floods, it covers the land, not only in water, which which irrigates the land, but also a thick layer of mud, which is useful for building. It's fertile. It, it will then, the waters will retreat, the sun will bake the land and it will be sterilised. It's a really good natural cycle that, that they had going on. And it meant that rather than waste a lot of time building irrigation systems, they could build other things. It, it freed them up a lot. It was very reliable. So obviously it's a source of food. It attracts animals to the to water, things like birds that you can eat, the fish in it. So very, very strongly connected to agriculture, hunting and farming. The mud can be used to build. They built all their Domestic buildings, houses, palaces and so on from mud brick, not from stone. This is why we have so few of them, because they were built from this mud brick. They haven't survived in the way that the the temples and the tombs have done. So you've got this building material that's freely available and you've got loads of it. Um, Transport is one that, that we tend to forget about. But in Egypt, transport was by boat. And it's so interesting because even their sun, when it sails across the sky, it sails in a boat it doesn't ride in a chariot that like many other people's sons do so all transport is by boat when the gods process out of their temples they actually get into a boat which is carried on the shoulders of their priests and the the nile it's not just the nile the nile is connected to networks of canals so if you've got a building site you'll build a canal and connect it to the nile and of course this ability to use water as transport means they have the ability to move big blocks of stone in a way that other people can't do because once you've got it onto the boat, and that is no easy matter, getting something onto a boat, but for an obelisk, for example, massive long strips of stone that they created in, in the in the um, quarries in the south of Egypt and transported northwards, we don't even know how they managed to raise these. We still can't do it today, but we know that the water made it possible to transport it. 
So it's absolutely fundamental to Egypt. And without the river, um, it just wouldn't have existed. And travel, I should just mention this, the interesting thing is because also another good thing is that the current flows towards the Mediterranean Sea, but the wind blows the other way. So if you want to go towards the north, you just sail with the current. Well, you, you, you float with the current, I guess is the way. If you want to go south, you put your sail up. So we can always tell, looking at a boat, which direction it's going in, whether it's got its sail up or down, because it's just, so it's that easy. That was Joyce Tildesley. Joyce has written a feature for us on eight ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses that you might not know about. You can read that by heading to historyextra.com and searching for ancient Egyptian gods. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Levi Roach on medieval forgeries. Hey.